we, for the first time in human history, have a very clear understanding of how it is that we can be organized in a way that is decentralized, yet still cooperative. Today, I'm delighted to be welcoming Peter Ludlow um, in conversation with Jared Hope on Network Estate. Um, before we get into uh, some detailed questions and uh, talk about Network Estate and a whole variety of topics, um, I was just wondering if, Peter, um, if you could tell us a bit more about yourself. You've been um, an inspiration uh, to many of us um, within our space, but also broadly throughout the years. You're a well-known author, you're a well-known philosopher, uh, and an intellectual. Um, so uh, I just wanted to, uh, for you, uh, if that's okay, in your own words, tell us a bit more about yourself, your uh, intellectual journey, and your development throughout the years. Well, let's see. Um, many, many years ago, I got my PhD in philosophy. That would have been around 1985. And then my first job out from there was actually in uh, the, the artificial intelligence uh, area, uh, specifically the Intelligent Interface Systems Group at Honeywell back in the day. So this is kind of OG artificial intelligence. Um, and then at some point uh, in the mid-90s, I got involved with certain foundational issues involving the internet. And I had a collection of papers that I edited called uh, High Noon on the Electronic Frontier. And then uh, our, in the late 90s, I got interested in issues involving cryptography and how one might use cryptography to create little islands in the network and create little sovereign states, as it were. And so towards the end of, of the 20th century. I guess the book came out in 2001, but it was assembled a little bit earlier. Uh, I published a collection with MIT Press called Crypto Anarchy, Cyberstates, and Pirate Utopias, in which I explored the possibility of um, online um, network states, if you will, or cyberstates, as I called them, uh, that could exist outside of the purview of traditional nation states and the internet. And um, I've done other things since then in different areas, but I think that's the reason we're here today. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me, it's a huge honor to like to speak with you and, and to work with you. Uh, I became aware of the book uh, probably when I was around 13 or 14 years old, uh, Crypto Anarchy, Cyberspace, and Pirate Utopia. Um, and I came to it through like the tail end of like muds and moves. Uh, and I was using like um, you know, precursors to, I guess, what people call the metaverse these days, uh, particularly a 3D chat program called Active World. Um, and I saw that, you know, inside these worlds, you started to have these governance issues. Um, at the same time, I was also got into anarchy and libertarianism and agorism at the time. So like it was a sort of perfect blend of like the ideas that I was already discovering myself. Um, but I would be really curious to hear, like, what was your perspective at that time? And, like, like, why were people thinking this? And, like, yeah. Well, I mean, there weren't very many people thinking this at all. I mean, there were basically the cypherpunks, so people like Timothy May and so forth. Uh, and, um, uh, and then a little bit later, about that time, you had the essay, the essay um, by... Uh, 
the, the uh, declaration, sorry, the declaration of the independence yep. of cyberspace. And uh, that was inspirational for some people as well. But I think for me, the kind of big inspiration were the cypherpunks and in particular, uh, Tim May's thing, which was called a Crypto Anarchy Manifesto, I believe it was called. And he sort of, in a very short kind of two-page manifesto, he's, he kind of spelled out some of these ideas. And um, I just went and surfed the, the internet and, and dug up as much as I could. But it was a finite amount of information at that time. I mean, there were like 10, 15, 20 essays that were exploring these topics. And uh, some of it was academic and some of it was just people doing rants and manifestos on the internet. So I assembled those and uh, then created a kind of arc um, tying them together and, and trying to articulate some sort of theme that was emerging from, from those ideas that were percolating at the time. But Jared, I have a question for you. So you were like 13 or 14 years old at the time when you came across the collection. Yeah, and so how did you find it? I'm curious. Um, you know, I, I like, uh, as I said to Stellar Assange in, in a previous podcast, right, I became like aware of um, Julian Assange through, you know, the allegations of him penetrating Milnet um, and his hacker group, the International Subversive. Uh, and at the time, they were publishing uh, tips and tricks on, you know, various hacking uh, and freaking. And like freaking was kind of like my, First foray, even though I was already uh, into the sort of hacking scene. Freaking right? meaning like is... phone freaking, yeah. Where you exactly. the old analog telephone system or something. Or... Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and like my father used to work for Telcom, um, oh, oh, which nice. was the national uh, telecommunications provider in Australia. Right. Um, so I naturally had an inclination towards that and like would build beige boxes and I managed to get like a bunch of codes, go into the ABX systems and these sort of things. Um, but that kind of introduced me into the sort of cyberpunk scene. Okay, right. so look, if I can ask you questions here too. <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean yeah, to take the moderator role, but I'm fascinated by this. So when you say a beige box, that's like what we, I'm familiar with blue boxes, which a blue box was a thing, as I recall, that made a tone that would replicate the noise that was made when you dropped a quarter in an old phone. And so what's a, a beige box then? A beige box was basically just like a, hand, a headset that had like these wires or like alligator clips attached to it, right? Okay. Um, and so you could get into these like pits and literally just clip on both sides onto a telephone wire and you would have instant access to uh, any communication that was running over it. Um, so then you could like, you know, run your modem over that and be using someone else's phone line effectively. Okay. So, okay. So, I mean, this is like, I'm really fascinated by this too. And again, I don't mean to take the moderator's role here, but there's a, there is a history of like guys that came out of the, the phone freaking thing. I guess the most famous examples are like Steve Jobs and, and Wozniak, right? Didn't they start out as phone freakers? Uh, I, I'm, I'm not actually entirely sure. Okay. On that. No, okay. I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, yeah. And then, so uh, one last question and then I'll let us get back on track. So you, you are a fellow Australian with Assange then. So did you know of Assange before he became an international thing? Um, no, I mean, yes and no. Like, I, I think it kind of happy coincided, right? Um, so we were both on opposite ends of, of Australia, and it's a very sparsely populated place. Yeah. Uh, 
having, having that said, um, yeah, and like the internet was also very different then. Uh, but it, I think it was through the news that I started to, to become more aware of him, uh, particularly around Milnet. Okay. Uh, and then I basically followed him since. Okay. And I promised I wasn't going to ask any questions, but I have one more. So when you got a cop, you were like 13, 14 years old, and you somehow you got a copy of Crypto Anarchy, Cyber States, and Pirate Utopias, like in a yeah. library or a bookstore. Exactly. Um, so I found it in a library, okay. uh, in a local library um, initially. Yeah, and then I got my own copy eventually. And you were living at home at the time, or you were out? Uh, so it, it kind of happened, I, I was reading it during a transitionary period, right? So um, I ended up leaving home okay. relatively early um, yeah. and living on a park bench and yeah. kind of only had $20 and you know, a pair of clothes uh, right. to, to my name. Right. Um, so, so yeah, and then like uh, at that point, it was very much like survival mode, trying to figure out how to um, how to make money and like uh, you know, I was very good with computers, so like uh, I naturally did like web mastering or you know, I guess right. like you call it right. app web application development these days, that sort of thing, uh, as well as media design. But um, was also very interested in like understanding systems and um, exploiting them and. Uh, very cool. Very cool. The other side of that is, I, I guess, partially um, the reason why, like, anarchy was something that was appealing to me, or which kind of evolved into libertarianism as, as moved on from there, um, was largely seeing like authority positions that uh, had a, a, what I would consider to be incompetence, right? And mm. I felt like that was an abuse of authority, and I didn't take very well to that, uh, as well as, you know, um, the the circumstances of being transitioning out of home, I guess. Right. So, so, but yeah. I have to say, I have this mental image of this 14-year-old kid sitting on a park bench with a dog-eared copy of Crypto Anarchy, Cyber States, and Pirate Utopias. That's, uh, yeah, I would say that's a pretty accurate description. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. amazing. All right. Yeah. Okay. Al, I return, I return the uh, moderation to you. Fantastic. No, no, no. But I mean, I, I guess, like... Go ahead, Jared. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm kind of curious, like, you know, why like, why was Crypto Anarchy interesting to you? Like, why why did that... Why did you get drawn to that and then write a book about that? Um, well, uh, so... I like it's kind of a vague memory of how all this went down, but the deal was I had been working in the computer industry, and then I got a job in a philosophy department. And at some point, we had a very paranoid dean of humanities, and someone had leaked one of his memos. It was someone in the women's studies department, but he decided that it must be me, and so <laughs> and so he passed around this memo about the electronic intruder that had somehow hacked it. He decided that because I knew about computers, I must have hacked into uh, the university email system or something like that. Because this was, say, 19, uh, early 90s, 90, 91, something like that. And at the time, if you knew anything about computers at all, um, you must be a hacker. I mean, so... So yeah. we, we see paranoia about technology today. At the time, it was through the roof. I mean, anything, you know, people, the way people talk about crypto now, 
or the way people talk about uh, Bitcoin now, that's how they talked about the internet period, you know. Um, and so I became sort of fascinated by the psychology of people that would act this way and um, act against people in this way. And so I became interested and I actually met a bunch of early hackers like fiber optic and those guys. And there was a guy who made um, some tabletop games, role-playing games. It was called Steve Jackson games. And he had one called cypherpunk and you know, a lot of, he had been raided by the secret service because of his tabletop game. Um, and so there was a kind of collection of these people who had been victimized by paranoia about technology uh, that we got together in the well, which was an electronic, an early electronic bulletin board um, where the well stood for whole earth electronic link. And at the time, um, you know, so there were some early hackers in there. And then uh, John Perry Barlow, Mitch Kapor, this was about the time they started the Electronic Frontier Foundation. And so I became one of the the Ur donators to the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Mike Godwin had even started working for them at the time. He was just on the on the well spouting stuff about the law. Um, he ended up he ended up writing the forward to my first collection, the one High Noon and the Electronic Frontier. So I met all of these people and then I just got in, engaged with it and uh things the government was doing against people that were interested in technology, um, cryptography. And that's how I became familiar with the cypherpunks and, and uh, various ideas involving um, crypto in general. And I mean, like the, the book is like a play on like Robert Nozick's uh, yeah. defense of libertarianism, right? Yeah. Like anarchy state utopia. Exactly. Like, yeah. How do you compare and contrast uh, or is there a comparison at all? Well, um, I mean, it is, it, it, it does touch on anarchy. It does touch on state and it does touch on utopia. And uh, at the time, I was interested in where this was going to go and would it lead to um, some form of anarchy or anarchal organization if i know that sounds um inconsistent like an oxymoron but actually it's not right it's just because anarchy just means without a head and so you could still organize right um and and then utopia and what i was interested in well could could these virtual states if and when they emerge could could they foster certain kinds of utopian visions. And so I looked at people that thought yes, and people that thought hell no. Um, and then I ended up with a, a kind of view which was on the margins, where I took the idea from Hakim Bey and his temporary autonomous zone. and said, well, you're going to get these little temporary utopias, but they're going to get smushed out. So at the time, there was a kind of pessimism in my thinking about what we now call network states or cyber states. And I thought that they would emerge, but that the powers that be would squash them. And I'm not that pessimistic anymore. Now I think they actually have staying power. Uh, and I think they're somewhat inevitable. And in fact, in fact, I think they will outlast the, the powers that currently be. 
Okay, well, I mean, there's there's certainly lots to unpack um, there and, yeah. and, and get into, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, so, so you kind of, you know, alluded to like, you know, then and and now. Uh, I guess like, I'd be very curious to hear a bit more like how your how your thinking has changed and why you've gone from this sort of pessimism to this uh, maybe optimism or cautiously optimistic. Well, I think the key thing you, you have to remember that when I assembled the material. It was in the late '90s, and and it was published in 2001, I believe. Um, I mean, it was all pre-Satoshi, right? And so there was there were ideas about digital currency in there, but this was in that if you remember David Chalm when he was one of the pioneers of digital currency, and so there was always a thought: well, we're going to get digital currencies, et cetera, et cetera, but. It was Satoshi that really showed us how we can be coordinated. So the way I think of it is it's not merely decentralized, but it's decentralized yet coordinated, right? So that Bitcoin, for example, is completely decentralized or nearly completely decentralized, but there's a kind of coordination mechanism um, uh, that underlies the whole thing. And so then once you have that idea, then you can suddenly become a lot more optimistic about what can be accomplished with cyber states, uh, that you can actually be organized even though you are somewhat anarchical, right? That is, you don't have centralized authorities running the show. You can actually have coordinated human action without a single centralized authority or without having even um yeah well we could actually argue talk about this but i was going to say oligarchy but i know you've been thinking about that lately so but then the the basic idea is yeah now satoshi really showed us that um we can organize ourselves we can have organized systems even though we don't have any sort of centralized mechanism running the show and to me let me just add here that this is the big big thing about about the satoshi about satoshi's white paper you know everyone thinks that well what what is crypto about it's a new it's about a new financial order we're talking about uh a new asset class or we're talking about uh a new currency or we're talking about new way a new kind of way of transferring money etc my idea is no 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 you're missing the whole point this is like that, that's not the big idea at all that's just a tiny little that's just the tiniest little proof of proof of concept that we're going to apply to human governance generally and across the board right so this is just a drop in the ocean that we've seen so far that's that's kind of where i'm at now yeah i mean i definitely see that i i think like uh, i share similar understandings around that like um you know the bitcoin is like the app or the proof of concept that runs on top of it you know similar to, to DeFi, and it's like it's just a monetary policy right um Whereas the actual, you know, decentralized ledger, the, you know, the consensus, um, you know, the actual network that's being run, you know, extrajudicially, um, is where the real innovation is. Right. Um, and you can deploy any policy or any institution right. on top of that. Right. Um, so like the, in, in my view, I guess, like I view it as a voluntary social order, um, or a legal, a legalistic order um in which you know 
I wouldn't necessarily go as far as to say as coders law because that's quite taboo these days. But um, you know, there's the potential for that to arise on on such an order. What well, so? Let's unpack that code is law business. So when you say that, are you you're thinking about the Lawrence Lessig stuff? Uh, uh, yes, that, and I think like you know, uh, Lessig sort of phrasing got adopted uh, early on in in uh, the Ethereum community, for example, right? Um, but then through the the DAO hack, uh, I think there was uh, a little bit of humility that came in uh, amongst the community as they uh, had to negotiate, you know. Uh, a surgical hard fork or a soft fork, I guess. Um, All right. Let's talk about the DAO hack because there might be listeners that don't know what the DAO hack is or was, but you lived through the DAO hack. You sure, saw it. sure. So let, let, yeah. let, me, let me just start with my understanding of it and then you can, like, you can tell me where I've got it wrong. So first of all, let's start with the DAO which is a decentralized autonomous organization or a decent, is that how you would put it? So basically one of the things that we get out of crypto and crypto anarchy is the idea that you can have organizations that are not built top down like traditional corporations are, but they're completely decentralized. They might be autonomous. That is they just live on the blockchain. So we could take certain smart contracts that execute these execute contracts online. They're on the blockchain. Actually, maybe we should start there. I don't know what the level. This is a parenthetical remark, Al. I don't know what the level of audience is that we're aiming at here. Um, how I much? I think it'll be crypto people. What like, kind, What level? I think, I think it'll be already crypto converts. All crypto converts. Yeah. So you, yeah. so we assume knowledge of smart contracts. I think so. I mean, we can we can briefly touch upon it if there's like you know a unique perspective on that. Like, uh, but yeah. Okay. All right. So, so let's take the original DAO and let's see if I've got this right. Um, so yeah. we have this distributed autonomous organization and uh you can think of a DAO. it might be organized around smart contracts on the blockchain um i guess the interesting thing about this first DAO, named the DAO, was that uh it was going to uh have a kind of decentralized structure that would be involved with certain investments right on 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 new protocols on the blockchain. And then someone hacked it and siphoned off a bunch of money. And then I guess the reason it became controversial is because uh, Vitalik and others sat down and they decided, well, we need to do a reset here because it's supposed to be code as law. And so, but yet somebody found a flaw in the code but we're not going to let them get away with that because there's some deeper principle, I guess. And so he did a rollback with, i.e., a hard fork of the Ethereum protocol. Right? Is that? Yeah. Was, yeah. I mean, that's more or less it. I mean, yeah, the DAO was effectively, you know, trying to make this sort of, uh, I guess, anarchical, you know, uh, venture capital fund that could also be like self-replicating into different ventures, right? Yeah. Um, 
but there was this sort of splitting function which partitioned, you know, funds, uh, and there was uh, an exploit in the in the in the smart contract code um, that allowed for funds to be drained, right? And so this really brings into the question like this notion of Coda's law or Coda's law because it now is like, well, the code was written as an uh, was written and deployed as intended, right? Yeah. Uh, and so at the same time, like a lot of people who weren't, you know, part of this sort of aristocracy or, you know, people who couldn't read solidity at the time, um, use, you know, heuristics to kind of under, you know, to, yeah. to trust, you know, people like Vitalik and other prominent leaders right. in the space that this was a vehicle worth putting your assets into. Right. Um, and then, uh, we didn't have like the same t developer tooling that we do have now. So like, you know, we have formal verification, like, uh, that, you know, comes with specifications. Yeah. Uh, yeah, solidity is a lot better now. Um, these sort of things, but, um, yeah, it's very like, it, it's kind of like deploying, you know, code for a nuclear reactor in many ways, because there is this sort of, um, myth that, you know, blockchains are immutable. Um, and ideally they are, and like, they certainly are very difficult to, to change the history of, um, anyway, it, it did end up with, you know, the, the leadership of Ethereum foundation coordinating with miners and with exchanges, uh, to mitigate the fallout from this. Right. Um, and, and part of that was from pressure from, you know, uh, well, perceived pressure from the SEC, right? Like, uh, the entire Ethereum project could have, you know, failed, or at least the fear of, of it failing um due to mismanagement of funds and and uh loss you know loss of consumer protection yes so i see um in yeah. your view could that happen today could you uh, could you yeah, could, definitely. Oh, you think it could you think there, uh, there could be another hard fork of ethereum or something if there was some catastrophic mm -hmm. yeah I mean, absolutely i think like it, it's part of so so i had like um a huge reconfiguration of mine or disillusionment at this point right uh i i think up until then i was purely a technologist and i viewed these things as being like illegal systems that uh are just technology and didn't have a social component to them and so i believed in this you know uh idea of immutability and um modifying the chain was you know effectively sacrilegious yeah um, and like this is an idea that is held in in Bitcoin to a large uh, extent. Yeah. Um, this sort of ideology of not modifying the chain. Yet, if you want to write a Bitcoin node or a Bitcoin client from and uh, synchronize from scratch, you have to emulate all of the bugs that were in the client um, at, at certain you know between certain block times or block numbers. Yeah. Right. So you have to emulate the bugs throughout history just so you can get to the point of the current state yeah. um, as intended. So, you know, one of the ways you can do that is obviously formal verification, like improve, like, or reduce the risk of that happening. Um, another way, like on the client side is to write multiple clients at the same time under different implementations, uh, uh, different languages, right? So you have different implementations. Um, that way, if a bug introduced by a programmer is done in one client, uh, it may not exist in another client. Uh -huh. um, uh -huh. It doesn't, doesn't pre uh, prevent you from specification failures, but um, yeah.
Let, let me circle back to this code is law business, because I think we hear that slogan all the time. And we heard it at the time of the, the hard fork and the Dow hack and so forth. And was it, but code is law. You can't do this. But that just suggests that everyone who's saying code is law and repeating it as like some sort of mantra, they didn't actually read the book. Because if you read Lawrence Lessig's book, cleverly titled Code is Law, or whatever, it's like there's really four four different components of it, right? And so as he points out, the real issue is that there's like some agent or something and what's what's fundamentally controlling what that agent does and so forth. And so some things you pass laws for, some things you don't really need to pass laws for because, for example, the laws of physics govern it, right? So you don't, we don't have laws that say don't steal skyscrapers, right? Because it's like, you can't do it. No one can pick up a skyscraper and run off with it. And, you know, we're not going to have laws that say, <clears throat> we're not going to have speed limit laws that say don't, don't go faster than the speed of light. Um, <clears throat> and similarly, uh, he had um, this notion that, uh, it's not just so you've got the physical laws, as it were, controlling things, and you also have social norms that control certain things. So there's certain kinds of uh, laws that we don't bother passing simply because we count on religious or ethical norms to govern what people do there. Um, and so the idea of, you know, what part of this is actually law that's governing behavior is, is somewhat limited to begin with. And then when you get into the code as law part of it, that's really my take on it or my understanding of it is that the part of it that you're coding up, whether it's in the blockchain or whatever, is just part of the equation, right? And so I know I know you've thought a lot about this, but it's sort of like, you know, the code in isolation is basically meaningless because, because any technology assumes that there's certain kind of human values that go along with it. It has to mesh with certain kinds of human values. So any kind of code you write, that if, if it's going to be successful, and this is true of the basic Bitcoin protocol, right? That is, Satoshi's code only works if you have the, the right mindset of the, among the miners and the devs, right? Is if they don't have the right mindset, that, that can go to hell in a hurry, right? I mean, um, and I think, I think that's an important point that people miss in this whole code is law thing, which is that no, there is a kind of ethical component to this as well, or a, a, a set of values that you have to have that accompany the code itself in order for this to, to actually work. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I, I think that's kind of why I view it as an order rather than law, right? So like, mm. I, I think um, on the code as law, like you can import law or like common law or tort law on chain um, by like writing the smart contract institution that represents some kind of court system, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, but it may follow rules that are very similar to, to or familiar to what we already have today. Um, whereas the policies that get written into the client and is shared amongst all the people securing the network, all the nodes securing the network, that is kind of the um, legalistic aspect that maintains the order. Um, but at the end of the day, all of this technology is effectively, um, as you, like, as you said, like an expression of these values or, or the political formula, um, of the creators, right? Yeah. So 
Bitcoin has a, a, a libertarian political formula. Yeah. And like, uh, as long as that's upheld by everyone participating in the network, in that community, um, that should endure with the, with the chain and it will lose its legitimacy if that political formula is violated, if um, according to the users who are participating in that network. Right. Similarly, I think Ethereum um, has evolved over time and probably has more of a, a, a modern liberal political formula that underpins it. Yeah. Um, and then that seeks its expression through through the uh, the technology itself. Right. So, for example, we talk about you know everyone talks about Bitcoin as though it's this completely immutable thing, and there's going to be twenty one million bitcoin and never more never but you know if we brainwashed the miners and the devs and sort of like say we 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 just got we got them brainwashed into uh keynesian economics or you know modern monetary theory or something like that we could we could brainwash them into sort of uh inflating bitcoin right i mean they could be cranking out 40 million bitcoin if we brainwashed them into doing it there's no, there's nothing in the, in, in the technology itself that prevents that from happening. No, and I don't think you can prevent that from happening, right? Um, you know, you can, uh, you can, you know, do slashing conditions based on staking, but it all has to, has to happen within the protocol. Like, um, and it kind of reminds me of some of the. You know some of the political realists like Carl Schmidt. You know he has a terrible reputation. Um, yes, he does. <laughs> but he does have an interesting idea around um, the exception, uh, and he, you know, his perspective is that you shouldn't really judge a, a state by its norms or like how it's functioning in these times, but rather who has the decision-making capacity uh, in times of crisis, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, and what's you know, and so. In a nation state, or you know, in in historical states, uh, that would be whoever's the sovereign, right? Um, this would be either an elite or a king, um, or the you know oligarchy or something like this. Uh, whereas in um, in block public blockchains, I think that it exists, but the power is a bit more diffuse, right? Because uh, anyone can run this node and start participating uh, in the security of the network. Um, there are power laws uh, around that, you know, depending on how many, like in proof of work, how many miners you have, like mining cards you have, um, or in proof of stake, how much capital you're putting up, depending on how the protocol is structured. Um, but then there's also the developers um, uh, and uh, the distributed systems researchers uh, and uh, the leadership around organizing those, which is external to the chain, um, yeah. external to the order, um, that can change um, yeah. their perspective on these things. The issue, though, is that that power also has limits um, based like, based on this notion of this political formula, right? Like, um, if everybody's using Bitcoin for the purposes of, like, say, libertarian ideals, and now it starts to violate those in some way, um, you it loses, the, the people who are running that, uh, that that network start to lose the legitimacy, right? And you'll experience some kind of hard fork, um, which I see as an ideological rift. Uh, and then there'll be two new paths of history uh, around. And this kind of happened at the Dow fork with Ethereum Classic. There yeah. were people who didn't read the book yeah. and still think code is law. And, yeah. uh, 
you know, they're still on proof of work and yeah. uh, they're keeping everything as uh, as God intended, yeah. right? Like, yeah. you know, the political theology. It's um, still there. Ethereum is Classic is still there, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's going it's going relatively quite strong. Yeah. You know? Okay, so let let me ask you a question. So, when things go to shit, basically, that's when you find out what the real structure of things are. Yeah. If things go to shit with Ethereum, if there was some big crisis today, what happens? Someone people call up Vitalik and a handful of other people. Is that is that? what happens you are by the way you are actually right smack in the middle of all this because status <laughs> broke ethereum right and so Correct. okay well, we, I, you know we didn't break uh, ethereum uh, but the the people participating in the uh, in the uh, in the uh, donation uh or ico i guess we're allowed to say now um did uh so so i mean in 2017 we were lucky to be uh, a beneficiary of um a token sale or raise uh, for status. Um, and at the time, a lot of the, uh, we were still experimenting with ways of, you know, uh, raising uh, after the fallout of the DAO um, to build out all the public infrastructure that's necessary uh, to continue these projects, right? Like Ethereum at writ large. Um, and there were issues in terms of um, how, Previous ICOs at the time were functioning because uh, you could, you know, a large player could get the majority of their share just by having a very large transaction fee um, and paying that towards the miners. Um, mm -hmm. There were also miners themselves that were injecting their own transactions and prioritizing them, um, irrespective of the actual protocol design, mm -hmm. um, which has kind of evolved into MEV these days, right? Mm -hmm. um, but um, yeah, so. We were trying to, um, we were working with Jordi Bellina to try and figure out how to make this more fair because uh, we wanted to have a token distribution amongst um, actual users uh, and not just, you know, uh, large stakeholders, which would also um, create issues for, you know, governance of DAO governance in the future if we had like large stakeholders in the protocol. Okay. Um, and so we had these ceilings, which basically limited the amount that you could. Um, enter into a like, into a transaction at any point and it would refund the rest back to the user um okay so, this is, so this basically is basically you're setting a limit on per wallet how much how much static yes. i can acquire yes. okay correct okay. yeah so um and uh nobody like we did a commit reveal scheme so nobody could know the curves that we're using to to um, understand this was because we were limiting it initially, and then we we're allowing it to be larger up to a certain fill size, and then we we're resetting the curve. Um, but what this ended up doing was, um, at first, it clogged the entire um, chain because nobody paid attention to all of these transactions were getting re rejected. Right? Mm -hmm. um, there were. Uh, we also limited the amount of gas you could send in a transaction. So if you sent more gas, it would reject the transaction entirely. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so the first wave where the mempool got completely filled, at the time, Geth had an incredibly small mempool, so just transactions would get lost from the network entirely. Um, okay. And, um, yeah, and eventually, like, it took, long story short, it probably took about a day or two for the mempool to get fully cleared. Um, and 
the entire time the Ethereum network is effectively a denial of service uh, attack. Uh, so, okay, so nobody else can that's not. So there are all these proposed transactions or attempted transactions that are just sitting there waiting for nodes to pick them up. And they were all attempts to buy status. Is that the idea? Correct. And then, yeah. so then, so then what happened? So is it true that Vitalik actually contacted you guys directly? Yes, he contacted Geordie. Yeah. And uh, a few other prominent members were just like, you know, they woke up and like, what the, what the F was going on? And what know? did he want um, you to do? Did he tell you to just stop or what did no. he want? Well, no, we couldn't do anything, right? Like it was like once it's deployed, it's deployed and like everything was happening. So we just had to write it out at that point. Okay. So code, um, in that case, code was lost. So you just, God himself contacted you and you said, there's nothing I can do about it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. then, on the other hand, there was nothing he could do about it either, right? Correct. Yeah, I mean, not really. Like, I mean, at that point, you're dealing with participants in the network trying to make transactions. Uh, right. And um, it, it's it's a limit of the actual network's ability to process transactions. Like right. Bandwidth capacity. Right. right? Um, you know, and, like, people talk about transactions per second a day. Yeah. Um, because because of things like this right right okay but so so i mean that's the case where they, it looks like code is law right because it's like it's not like a traditional thing where like you're doing something and like the chief calls you up and says shut it down now because you're like i can't and it's not like he could shut it down this was just going to go forward you know and you're just going to yeah. have to fix the network eventually yeah i mean I, I think there's an economic component to this as well. Yeah. So, like, in the case of the DAO hack, you could talk to, like, miners to, you know, try and exclude certain transactions. I mean, that's kind of what happened in the Tornado Cash incident where, um, you know, members securing the net network were effectively um, censoring relays of blocks, yeah, right? right. Um, so they were volition. But in this case, like, you're basically going to a miner and saying, hey, don't make money, like stop making money um, because this is taking, you know, this is using up the network. But it's, it's kind of a function of the network's design, right? Like um, it's a service network. Um, you effectively pay taxes in the form of, you know, for services rendered by the network. In this case, it's processing transactions through the EVM um, and everything's working intended. And so like, what, what can you do? Yeah. I, I think miners would have been happy if, they there was a free market around the transaction cost, the the total gas being able to be dumped into that, yeah. so they could earn more money and prioritize the transaction. Yeah. Um, and there was also money that was uh, for miners. There was money left off the table because, um, as I said, like even though there was floating transactions in in the network, they eventually disappear because the capacity for each node, um, in their mempool was ridiculously small. So like you could only hold like, you know. A handful of transactions in in your yeah. memory of a node mm -hmm. at any point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think Al is going to kill us if we don't get to network states and Balaji and so forth. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. This is a this is a fascinating conversation to uh, to witness, and um, definitely some really interesting um, takes for me as well. So thank you so much, both. And it's the easiest moderating job I've ever had, by the way. Um, <laughs> 
Yeah, I do. Um, I do have like two small questions about the earlier part of the conversation about the book and Jared's journey, but also yourself, Peter. If you don't mind me, I'll ask those first before we go into network sure. estates. So, sure, Jared, yeah. you've spoken a few times about the impact of Peter's book on your development. And, uh, you know, you're a successful technologist and entrepreneur who over the past few years have dedicated uh, your personal resources as a and have and uh, to a project which is about securing civil liberties. I just wanted uh, uh, for you to tell us a bit more about um, the impact. We know that you've told us about the impact, but just wanted in your own words to hear a bit more about how that book fundamentally shaped your views. Sure. I mean, I, I guess like... Um... Firstly, the like it helped calcify some things that I had I already started observing in the net, right? Like um, governance structures materializing that didn't really exist in the real world, but um, existed in cyberspace. Uh, and then, like you could see very clearly that there was like notions of territory in cyberspace, um, and like you know Peter's collection uh, and the subsequent work was really help calcify or at least give me the show that this is something real and not just like a figment of my imagination. There were other people out there that were thinking this, this way. Right. Um, and you know, Barlow's, um, declaration of independence in cyberspace was, it, it, it's, it, I don't know, warmed the heart or something like that. It spoke to the soul in some way. Um, and I, I think, the other side of that is like um, most cypherpunks are like reformists in some sort of way, right? And so the the attempts of cy like uh, cyber states um, or even um, you know hash cash or like electronic money, mm -hmm. you know, such as Bitcoin, were um, more in the line of thinking um, that was more appealing to me. It was kind of like, okay, well, you know, we can actually make we can actually codify everything, right? Um, and it wouldn't be too much later, like um, in, in my sort of twenties, that this started to calcify even more and understand, you know, a bit more about how political systems work. You know, like what states are or are not, um, and recognizing that you could probably achieve a lot of efficiencies um, in governance and unlock a lot of value uh, for mankind um, by treating it like software um, and. You know, I mentioned this notion of a political formula, and I don't think that I've fully really developed that yet. But I, I think that you can actually use this technology to create a political formula that is in line with liberalism, um, but holding liberalism more accountable to its own ideals um, in certain aspects, such as consent of the governed or we the people, um, and uh, also mitigate, you know, uh, things such as government, like uh, spreading governmental immunity. Um, I, I mean, I can keep going on on, on that sort of side, but um, and then like you know, Peter and I are working on a, on a new book, and like that's been very stimulating in terms of having to, to work with Peter and jam on certain ideas and, and help develop them out even further. Fantastic! Thank you so much. Now, Peter, can I ask you a bit of a personal question or a question from me? Is that what are your personal reflections when you look back or when you look at people like Jared? You've because through your work, you've inspired many generations. You inspired a lot of people. 
what are your personal reflections when you look back or when you come into contact with you know people like Jared? I know obviously as Jared mentioned, um, you two are co-authoring a book and working on a book together. But you must um, have had some personal reflections on all of these people who have been inspired by your work. Well, it's it's not like you think, oh, there was this stuff I did way back when. Isn't it rewarding that like people are discovering it and all that? Uh, because it's more, it's sort of more like I wrote it this week. I understand it's like whatever it was, 20 some years ago, more than 20 years ago. But it seems like it was yesterday and... And, it, and I feel like Jared read it in draft and we're still working on the ideas. So it doesn't feel in philosophy. This happens a lot because, you know, the scope of things and uptake is, is sometimes it's centuries before people find your ideas. And as a general rule of thumb, I find that if I write something in philosophy, it's at least 10 years before people find it and start engaging with me on it. So to me, it's completely normal in this case that, you know, 20 years later, somebody is like contacting me and saying, let's talk about it. Uh, it's, um, so it just feels like a, a conversation that's happening right now and that it's like 10 minutes old. I mean, that's, that's how it feels to me. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think the ideas are still pretty new and underdeveloped in many ways. Yeah, right? the core um, it's it's astounding how well it held up. I mean, so I mean, considering when it was when it came out. I mean, it was before there were even I mean, as I wrote it, graphical web browsers were being developed, right? So in the original draft it was, you know, I was talking about mosaic and then I had to change it to Netscape and now even Netscape's gone. But I mean, none of that really matters because the kind of core fundamental principles are the same. Right. So when you, you know, the technology comes and goes, but that's kind of superficial stuff. And the, the core issues, the core fundamental issues don't seem to change that much. One of those things I've always uh, uh, sort of was a bit of an um, occupation of mine as I think about um, diverse group of cyber states or network states or decentralized communities is about um, the cohesive ecosystem that they're going to live in. How do they collaborate? Um, you know, and I know this is something that Jared um, have uh, thought about in the past. We've discussed it. Um, but basically, are we going to sort of create a quasi-United Nation or something like the United Nation that fosters collaboration between all of these cyber states and all of these decentralized communities? Or actually, we need to think afresh and it needs to be something else. I mean, I certainly think there's going to be an internet of change, right? Which just then implies that there's an internet of, like, or a network of communities. Um, I mean, the other, th the other thing here is, is that um, the amount of cyber states you subscribe to will be dependent on, like, how you view your own uh, self-identity, right? Like, you can, in a similar way that you might have, like, dual citizenship with nation states, you could have you know, poly citizenship with multiple cyber states, uh, potentially, right? Um, I'm people. I'm not a huge advocate for layer twos. Um, I, I think that uh, I'm, I have a point here, but I'm not an advocate for layer twos because they're effectively the worst of both worlds. Um, from a network state or cyber state perspective, they're effectively a vassal state that's paying for security to um, an empire chain, or you know, um, but and. At the same time, at least in current designs, they are they are centralized. So 
they are beholden to the jurisdiction in which the node is operating in. Um, and they are explicitly performing the, transa uh, the transactional, the value transfer, which makes them subject to KYC and AML um, once regulators catch up to that. Um, ultimately, they'll turn into, into layer ones or at least have their own consensus. Uh, but what, never, that, that aside, what I do think they get right, um, and I, I think Alvaro also talks about, like, uh, who leads Nomos also talks about this. He says everything is bridged. And the thing that they get right um, is in the exit clauses for how value, like if the layer two misbehaves, how you can recover the value on uh, Ethereum because it effectively doesn't leave Ether the Ethereum network, right? It only um, has a virtual representation on the layer two. Um, so in the event where you might have multiple cyberspace and you're worried about exit from you know, a new cyberspace that you trust less, uh, but your value is still over in another one that you trust more, you'll still be able to, to have that exit possibility. Um, now, if that fails, then you, you're kind of screwed, right? But like, um, so you, there is definitely going to be a, a lot of, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of ways that things can go wrong, but like at least the potentiality for it to go right exists. So which it doesn't that's very cool. Cause so, so basically that could solve part of the exit problem that we were talking about. Like, can you take your resources with you? If you think about the resources in like state, whatever state S I'm in a state S and I've got so many resources that I've saved up over my life and then I need to exit. And then your point is, well, sure, but the state is kind of a layer two and the real value is still it's in Bitcoin or Ethereum or something like that. So when you exit the state, you can claim the true value. Yeah, I, I, I would get rid of the layer two from that sentence and just say like bridging between okay. like, uh, yeah, like yeah, the yeah. way that, you know, uh, different chains communicate to each okay. other, but it enables that property. Yeah. Okay. Um, I have a take on this question too, which, um, which is about how conflicts get resolved between virtual communities, not virtual communities, but blockchain communities or cyber states or whatever the case might be. And the take is this, um, that blockchain communities are going to facilitate a lot of things. And one of the things they're going to facilitate is conflict resolution. So like right now, the way things are structured, we run to mommy and daddy, to the UN or some centralized authority when there's a conflict between two states. But the way I envision it is that the minute you sit down and start negotiating community to community or state to state, the way you're going to do this is by creating a kind of blockchain community in which you are going to carry on this negotiation. So even if you're in negotiations with your worst enemy, right? Those two parties are creating a kind of community. And if we avail ourselves of blockchain community in order to do this, then we can actually facilitate the process of negotiating between parties in conflict in a way that traditional means of negotiating and resolving conflict are not, are not successful. Um, I mean, I'm a big believer in this. I mean, it's sort of a, uh, a theory about disputes in general and sort of where I really got into this idea was reading up about what's called relational contract theory. And it's something that's just as basic as a contract. I, company A en engages in a contract with company B and you think, well, the way it works is 
the contract says, I give you this, you give me that. But with contracts between large corporations, there are also there are always disputes over time over the interpretation of the contract or so forth. And so there's this emerged this version of contract theory in which, well, no, it's not just this document and I say this and you say that, but we are actually creating a relationship between us in which we are going to foster communication between each other and make very explicit what our goals are going to be and articulate those goals and make them available to each other so we understand which each party to the dispute is interested in. And I read that and I said, this is like, this is what blockchains were invented for, right? Because here you have a shared set of documents, shared archives, shared information. You have uh, a mode in which you can carry on discourse with each other about what your interpretation of the document is, in which you can articulate your interests, et cetera, et cetera. So I am sort of super optimistic about the future of conflict resolution at every level, not not just state versus state, but also when two corporations get into a conflict or just engage in a contractual relationship with each other. You are building a little community with someone in the minute you you enter into a contract with that individual. So whether you're engaged in a contractual relationship with another company, you're creating a little kind of blockchain community. If if it's state to state, you know, to resolve some sort of conflict or trade dispute or whatever, we're not going to run to sort of um, international organizations to resolve the dispute. I mean, we're going to create a little blockchain community for purposes of conflict resolution. Maybe outside parties will be part of that. But I'm, to me, this is one of the most interesting aspects of the whole thing. The idea of rethinking the whole, the whole nature of conflict resolution and how cr- community creation and blockchain communities are going to be a part of that. Yeah, I mean, like, and, and this idea is something we're trying to express in Nomos in two places. Like, uh, I talked about bridging, right? There's trust bridging protocols, which literally form uh, a network of nodes and kind of create a quasi chain between them that ha- helps facilitate, you know, the uh, value transfer or data transfer between two branches of, of the network or, or two chains. Um, but then, like, we also view communities starting off as smart contracts, but as the, as the relationship or the amount of participants grows, uh, they can effectively turn into an execution zone and act as their own network and even go so far as to secede from the rest of the network and act independently if there's enough value to secure their, their own version of consensus. Um, so yeah, like all of these ideas we're talking about, we're trying to encode into Logos and, and Domos. Yeah. So one last question, gents. At the top of the uh, the episode, Peter mentioned um, that he's optimistic. Um, now, uh, I wanted to ask both of you, what is it when it comes to cyber state and network state that makes you optimistic about the future? What elements, what aspects of it? You want me to go first? I, yeah. I, okay. So, um, to me, it's that for the first time, we have an understanding of how people can be decentralized or how organizations can be decentralized yet cooperative. And so the traditional way of thinking about things is, you know, well, anarchy is such a great idea, but then everything goes to shit because there's nothing organizing anything and it's just chaos, right? Anarchy in the sense of headless. Um, And 
with the development of decentralized systems, a lot of this sort of predates Satoshi a little bit, but Satoshi is sort of the clearest instantiation of it. Um, we, for the first time in human history, have a very clear understanding of how it is that we can be organized in a way that is decentralized, yet still cooperative. And that's like a fantastic invention. I mean, to me, I mean, Jared hates it when I, when I, <laughs> when I get really hyped up and, and start saying things like this, but, but I don't care. Um, to me, it's, it's a, a revolutionary invention on the level of, of writing, right? On the level of the invention of um, democratic voting, right? It is on that level. So it's difficult to not be optimistic when you think about it in those terms. Um, obviously, optimism doesn't mean utopian. It just means that, um, you know, it's not like... Um, I once uh, had a friend who said he, he was an optimist, um, but not like a traditional optimist. That is, so you said the pessimist says the glass is half empty, and the optimist says the glass is half full. This guy said, well, I think that the glass is two-thirds full. And I think that's kind of my take on this. It's not, it's not like utopia, but it's, it's better than the glass is half full. I would say the glass is two-thirds full. Yeah, I mean, that's a great answer. I don't hate it. Um, it's just, I, I guess, um, it, and we need people like that, right? Uh, I'm, I'm naturally uh, not pessimistic, but I guess more realistic. Um, and I've been working on the code and like building this sort of infrastructure and protocols um, and got involved in, in Bitcoin since like, you know, 2010. So, you kind of don't want to see how the sausage is made in, in like there's a lot of like yeah. historical yeah. there and that sort of thing. Um, but you know, reports like the World Bank and like seeing what this technology could potentially allow um, in terms of like uh, governance capacity for the planet uh, and just efficiency in general. Uh, when you step back and like sit there and, and take the time to ponder like what could be. It is enormous. Like it is a revolutionary idea that uh, whose time is coming uh, and will come. Um, it's becoming practical to implement these things now. Um, so I just want to keep my head down and working on it, and then like wait, look up again, and it'll be there. Yeah. Um, and I, I guess the other aspect of this that um, I find optimism through through pessimism is that uh, many people in crypto have ha had a lot of issues with their bank accounts, um, including myself, right? Um, and you, you very, like, if you spend time with this, you can see very clear, clearly how uh, the regime or, you know, uh, current policies in, in uh, traditional banks are being anti-competitive and are deliberately um, taking away your money. Um, it's still yours, hypothetically, but it's not. Uh, it, they are the custodians of it. Yeah. Um, and even if it, even if, like, it stays as cryptocurrencies. If a cryptocurrency becomes ubiquitous and you know globally accessible, then you'll actually have more ownership over your own value. You'll have stronger property rights, and like for me, that's like fundamental for societies. And um, I want. I would love to see that future, uh, if not for for us, for for our children. Here's my final question. <laughs> So the glass is what percentage full for you? Uh, 
am I drinking the Kool-Aid or am I, am I pouring it? It's like, I, I it's, guess it's Kool-Aid. Yeah. So you have to, it's Kool-Aid. It's, it's how full is the glass of Kool-Aid? Uh, I, I guess like, can I give a short answer? Like it really depends on like if this technology is, is, is allowed to, to come to fruition or where it comes into fruition and what time scale, right? So I, I think like the glass is full on a long enough timeline because the cat's out of the bag already. Yeah. Um, whether it's going to manifest itself in the next few decades is complete. It depends on us. Yeah. Depends. Depends on us. Yeah. Gents, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you both so much. Thank you so much to Peter for waking up really, really early. And, uh, <laughs> and of course, for accepting our invitation uh, to come on to the Logos State podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me, guys. I can't wait.